In our reading today from the Old Testament, if you have your Bibles there before you, we're reading in the ESV from Exodus chapter 32, reading verses 1 to 35. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink, and they rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn away your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it Inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and he went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he says, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and he saw the calf 
and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire. And he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire. And all of a sudden, out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again together. Father, as we approach your word today, we ask for the gift and the grace of your Holy Spirit that you might be our teacher, Lord, that you'd instruct us in the way of righteousness. Oh God, that we would hear you speak, Lord, to the innermost part of our being, that you would discern the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, Lord, we ask. And now, Lord, may the meditation of my mouth, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts this day, may they be acceptable in your sight. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. 
Alexander Nowell is a, is a fellow that uh, many of you will not know. He is one of the forgotten leaders of uh, the English Reformation. Many of you will know about Cranmer. Many of you will know about um, Ridley and, and uh, John Jewell. Some of you will know the name of Latimer. But few of you today will know and remember old godly Noel. Noel was one of the Marian exiles. He was one of those church leaders who fled England under Mary Tudor's reign. He went to the continent with the other reformers. And when he came back under Elizabeth I, Noel began to labor hard and zealously for the gospel and for the Reformation in England. And one of the most important things that Noel did was to write a catechism. Back in the 16th century catechism, this way to learn gospel and biblical truth by question and by answer was very, very important. And Cranmer wrote his own catechism. In fact, if you know the prayer book, towards the end, there's a very short catechism that's wonderful and helpful. But Noel wrote a larger catechism that kind of filled in um, and provided a much more needful and expansive instruction. J.C. Ryle, that old bishop of Liverpool, godly Anglican evangelical, thought that the relative oblivion of Noel's catechism, the fact that we've forgotten it altogether, is one of the greatest tragedies that has fallen upon the Anglican church, if not the larger evangelical church. In its day, however, Noel's catechism was very, very important. And it's a wonderful dialogue. It comes in the form of a dialogue between a master and a scholar, a teacher and a student. And when Noel comes to the subject of the Bible, of the Word of God, the master asks the student this question, into what chief parts, he says, do you divide all of this Word of God? And the scholar replies with this answer. He says, I divide it into the law and I divide it into the gospel. That's it. Very simple, isn't it? The scripture is either law or it's gospel. Then the master asks how these two parts may be known from one another, how they're distinguished. Then the scholar, he replies to the master and he says, the law sets out our duties both of godliness towards God, that is the true worshiping of God, and also sets forth charity towards our neighbor. The gospel contains the promises of God and to the offenders of the law, so they repent of their sins. The gospel, he says, promises that God will be merciful through Christ. So the master says his well answered, he says, and he says, what you have declared to me is this, that the word of God teaches us to do his will well, and the word of God contains all things necessary for our salvation. Law and gospel, the way that we should obey God and the way that we poor lawbreakers should find mercy. <laughs> That's the Bible. Wonderful simplicity. In Christ alone, we have mercy and grace and forgiveness and justification. In Christ, we have acceptance and eternal life. In the law, we have the pattern for how we must live now as God's obedient Children, now empowered by Christ to do this out of love. And when Noel comes to the Ten Commandments, the Master says that this law of God, these Ten Commandments, 
is the full and in all points perfect rule of the righteousness that is required of you and me, which commands those things to be done, and it forbids the contraries. God, he says, has given us two tables as a most sure way to worship God and a most sure way to behave towards our neighbor. And today what we're doing, we're continuing to think about this most perfect rule of righteousness, about how God expects us to worship him. And so today we're looking at the second commandment. Last week we heard that God expects us to have him to be first. In all of our thoughts, in all of our affections, in all of our will, God says none shall be more important than I am. Our commandment today, the second commandment, has to do with images. And our readings today illustrate the great ease with which God's people make idols. I mean, they do it right away. They're just out of Egypt and they fall into this. And then well over a thousand years later, the Apostle Paul has to warn the people of what's in their heart to do. And they must not, like the Israelites, do the very same thing. This commandment today, perhaps more than any other commandment in the Bible, it's, um, with the exception perhaps of the fourth commandment, it really requires our careful teaching and explanation today. Hasty thinking here leads us into all kinds of intellectual and spiritual collisions, if not outright absurdities. And so first of all, right off the bat, let me say this. The first and the second commandment are very distinct. They're different commandments. That may seem obvious to you, but they're often confused. They're often read as God saying in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And then saying in the second commandment, you shall have no idols. That is to say, you shall have no other gods. But that isn't the application of the second commandment. God isn't saying you shall have no other gods and you shall have no other gods. Commandment one is about the priority and the exclusivity of God, there are no other gods, and you shall not love anything more than you love me. Life, he says, consists in this. It consists in loving me more than you love anything else. Commandment two is not about other gods per se, but about how the worship of this exclusive God is to be performed. When you worship me, this is what you must not do. You remember what happened in that reading we did today when, when they make that golden calf. Aaron says, tomorrow a feast to who? To the Lord. It's to the Lord, they say. God says in the second commandment, when you worship me, this is what you must not do. And the specific instruction here in the second commandment is that when you worship the only God, you shall not think to represent him in the form of some image. You shall not think to liken him to anything that is in heaven or to anything that is in the earth or to anything that is in the water. I am not, the Lord says, to be compared to anything 
One of the most important verses uh, that's relevant to the second commandment is the verse that we sung today in our service. To whom then will you compare me, says the Lord. Isaiah 40, 25, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One of Israel. I'm not like anyone, God says. I'm not like anything. You see, what the second commandment does is to teach us and to assure us that the creator and the creature are utterly distinct. They're utterly different. They are utterly unlike the other. We have a hard time with this, but it's one of the great truths and it's one of the great mysteries of theology. The truth in the mystery that we can be made in the image of God, and profoundly so, and yet at the same time, God maintains his utter distinctness from us, and even his alarming strangeness. Remember when God makes that all-important covenant with Abraham, Lloyd preached on that not uh, years ago now, but that all-important covenant with Abraham, when God meets that man of God, It's a moment of dread, we read. It's a moment of strange darkness. Between between creator and creature, there is an infinite gulf, and the creator is not to be likened to the creature in any way, the Lord says. He's entirely unlike us. This, by the way, is why the second commandment humbles us so profoundly at the paradox of the incarnation, that in God's immeasurable power, in the person of Jesus Christ, the two things that can never meet, meet. The two things that must always forever remain infinitely apart, these two things are eternally and indivisibly united. Not by confusing the natures, but by uniting them in the person. In Christ the creator and the creature become perfectly one. Two natures, one Christ. And that's something that should never cease to stagger us. Now, in the second commandment, the temptation for us is this. To think that because we have no carved images of God in our church, we're in the clear. I don't see any here, do you? I don't see any attempts to put a carving of God in our church. And so we can say, well, we're clear then from the guilt of idolatry. We may be tempted to think that this is one of the easiest commandments to keep until that as we consider all of the meanings and applications, until we consider all the many ways that we can easily imagine that God is more like us than he is like himself. (laughs) Who are you? Shasta says to that great voice walking beside him. I am myself, says the great lion. Before I consider with you how this commandment applies to you and to me, I need to make two clarifications about this commandment uh, pertaining to this idea of imagery. First of all, the second commandment does not forbid images in society in general. That's not what this is about. In Kelowna City Park, there's a statue of some bears. I think it's a sow and two cubs. And over the years, 
by the water park there, my family has climbed over every square inch of those bears. And those sculptures of these creatures have brought us great delight. God isn't angered by those carvings. God isn't angered by those statues. The second commandment is not an injunction against art, where art is trying to represent creatures as creatures. In fact, this is one of the ways that we honor God, by representing the glory and the dignity of the creature as a creature. We should make images of the creature. I don't think that Christians should be the most artistic folk in humanity. That would be presumptuous. That would deny the doctrine of uh, common grace, I think. But I think of all people, we should be those who have most reason to delight in the visual representation of God's creation. We should be the most enthused about art, even if we're not the most gifted at it. So it's not about statues in society in general or carvings or engravings, number one. Secondly, and this is very crucial, the second commandment is not a wholesale rejection of imagery and worship. It's very important that we uh, understand this. The second commandment is a rejection of certain types of imagery. It's not a rejection of all imagery in worship. That is to say, biblical worship is never presented to us as aniconic. It's never presented to us as something that should never participate in the use of images. Well, how do we know this? Because when God gave this instruction in commandment two as to how to worship, he also gave instruction on the worship of the tabernacle. See, God instructed artists to make the place of his worship aesthetically beautiful, including the images of created things. Not only images of almond blossoms and of flowers, but images of creatures themselves, images of angels. In fact, where the ark rested in the Holy of Holies, there were two angels on top of that mercy seat, and God's glory rested beneath those outspread angelic wings. The curtains themselves, we read there were ten curtains in the tabernacle, and we read that they were skillfully crafted and deliberately crafted by God's command with the images of angels. God wasn't against the use of images in worship. You cannot read the Bible and come to that conclusion. Quite to the contrary, God commands specifically craftsmen to make images of creatures for his divine service, for his divine worship. What he is against is making images of himself. Nowhere in Scripture does God command that. St. Paul's Bloor Street, it's a beautiful cathedral-like Anglican church in Toronto where Heather, my wife, worked for a number of years as the rector's assistant. And uh, I had the privilege of wandering around that church many days and of slipping into the sanctuary and just being there. And uh, St. Paul's, at St. Paul's, you'll find arguably one of the most beautiful pulpits in Canada. It's a thing to behold. The pulpit, it was given to St. Paul's by a survivor of the Titanic. It, uh, it's this massive 
visibly commanding thing is right to the, to the left of the crossing. Churches uh, have a great crossing at the front before the chancel, and it's to the left, elevated at that crossing, and it's this massive oak pulpit, and in that pulpit are carved in massive panels, carved in relief, portraits of prophets, portraits of reformers, portraits of New Testament saints. It's as if the pulpit itself is telling people, these are the things you must not veer from. These are the truths that you must not move away from. You must not forget these things if you desire to be faithful. Now in Scripture, my brothers and sisters, God does not declare himself to be angry with images of reformers or images of saints or images of prophets. Because none of these things depict in creaturely form the unapproachable light whom St. Paul says no one has seen, nor, nor can anyone see. We, we sang that this morning in our hymn. God the Father cannot be seen. He is the immortal and the invisible. No one has seen God the Father. No one can see God the Father. And therefore, no one must attempt to depict him. But St. Paul can be seen. And Jeremiah can be seen. And Cranmer can be seen. And brothers and sisters, we have to acknowledge that Jesus, Jesus can be seen. The New Testament does not say of Jesus, whom no one has seen, nor can see. Rather, the Bible says that which we have seen that which we have heard, that which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Now, this use of spiritual imagery at St. Paul's Bloor Street, this pulpit carved with details and images, this reverent and thoughtful and worshipful space for God and his people is a form that is exemplified in the Old Testament and it's nowhere contradicted in the New. We're told in the New Testament to flee idolatry. We're told that it's a walk of faith and not of sight, as it was for all of those Old Testament characters in Hebrews 11. But we are nowhere told in the Bible that the spirit and the truth of Christian worship is a repudiation of the aesthetic craftsmanship and beauty and meaningful form of the worship of God. In fact, you'll remember when the Apostle John, when he goes to describe what the ideal form of worship is, the true pattern of worship, when he goes to describe what the heavenly church looks like, what does he resort to? But he resorts to the images of the Old Testament, uh, images of incense and of liturgical chant. We see now what the modern evangelical church does. Rather than prizing and emulating the biblical attention to reverence and beauty in worship, it copies the world, and it makes the church look like a theater or an auditorium because the world prizes entertainment. The people of God should prize the fear of the Lord and reverence towards his majesty and joy in the kindness of his gospel. The second commandment you see positively teaches the people of God to structure their worship so as to revere and to regard his majesty. 
Worship that lets God be God. Worship that doesn't diminish him. Worship that doesn't detract from his solitary and his unapproachable glory. Now, this is important. Where our worship then makes God seem to be less than he is, we, in effect, make and we worship an idol. If what we do on any given Sunday presents a God to us who is foreign from the God of the Bible, then even though we have no statue before us like these Israelites under Aaron, we've created a mental image of God that makes him appear less than he is. And the mental image is as prohibited as the material one. And all unworthy conceptions of God are forbidden to us by the second commandment. And the problem, as C.S. Lewis notes, is completely rampant. We want, Lewis says, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as we want a grandfather in heaven. We want a senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, whose whole plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. And Lewis includes himself in the problem. This is the idol that Lewis's heart so consistently attempts to carve, a Christian God who's just a senile benevolence. And Lewis states that it's the function of worship, true worship, to shatter that false God. Right worship smashes the false image. It's not senile benevolence. He is the holy God of Israel, we read, and he will be held in fear by all. And so the psalmist cries, Arise, O Lord, put them in fear, O Lord. May the nations know that they are but men. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And you see, we've grown very apt in the West at making the church a comfortable place for all people to attend. (laughs) It's kind of our cardinal rule, isn't it? Thou shalt not make anyone uncomfortable. When the biblical worship that we read invites us into an experience that is profoundly unsettling for our our, our, our idolatrous expectations of who God is. The Lord reigns, we read. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, we read. Let the earth quake. Let the people praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Brothers and sisters, where we begin to think unworthy thoughts of God, thoughts that limit him, Thoughts that diminish him. Thoughts that make God seem more like us than he's like himself. When we do this, we break the second commandment and we become idolaters. And brothers and sisters, we do this with astonishing ease and diversity. We have many idols that we put in our tent and we sit on them and we hide them when we imagine that God can't possibly forgive us this time 
and we construe God as a miserly Scrooge, reluctant to part with his currency of love and of forgiveness, we make him like us. We make an idol in our heart, and we perversely cling to it. When we imagine that God is like the indifferent police officer who is busy with other things and who looks the other way when we break his law, when we imagine that we're permitted to indulge in sexual immorality and that the God who slew 23,000 in a single day, he's not the God of the New Testament. And as we are indulging in the sensuality of our age in so many forms, and we refuse to listen to the Apostle Paul warn us that we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed. When we close our minds and hearts to who God really is, we make an idol and we serve it. We fall down before it and we worship it, and we rise to play, just like those Israelites did in that orgiastic and sensual dance. When our hearts swell and rise with unbelief, when we act with all of our frettings and fumings and gripings and complainings and our patent neglect of prayer, when we act in a way and live in a way that says, surely God can't help us, he may be powerful like Thor, but he's not the Yahweh of Genesis 1 and 2 who made everything in this universe out of nothing. When we do this, when we live with our unbelief, we craft our little God and we put him in our cabinet, and we feed our thoughts on a God of our own devising. Psalm 78, they spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He gave us bread and water. Can God give us meat? How often, writes the psalmist, they rebelled against him in the wilderness. They grieved him in the deserts. They tested God again and again. And the Bible says they limited the Holy One of Israel. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we don't need a carved figure to break the second commandment. We become idolaters whenever we refuse to acknowledge God as God, God as he has revealed himself to be, when we limit him, when we shrink him, when we diminish him in our hearts in any way. And Calvin says it very well, our hearts are natural idol factories. We just churn them out with ease. (laughs) Whenever we construe God as something that he is not, And so let me ask you this afternoon, when is the last time on your own, alone with God, that you articulately repented of you being an idolater? If Calvin's right and we're just churning these things out, and we're such zealous idolaters, it's fair for me to ask where idolatry ranks in our practice of confession. It should grieve us It should wound us that we do this so easily by limiting the Holy One. 
And so all of this today, by the Spirit, it should stir us, it should move us, just like Hezekiah, to search out the idols in our high places, to discover them and to smash them, and to grind all these false notions of God into powder, and to give ourselves to the right knowledge and to the right worship of the true God, a true God who's free, the God who's sovereign, who, who does as he pleases in heaven. He is the Lord. A God who is a majestic king and who burns with holiness, who longs for his own fame and his own honor to be published to the world by the righteous deeds of his righteous servants. And a God who reveals himself to us most clearly when he is twisted in humiliating agony and pierced and bleeding on behalf of our idolatrous hearts, which just can't seem to get over it. For our sakes, on a cruel Roman cross. Brothers and sisters, today, in response to God's word, the Lord have mercy upon us miserable offenders. And so fill us with the knowledge of his word and so write his laws upon our hearts and so fill us with the spirit of his obedient son that we may do all things today through Christ who gives us strength. In the name of the Father and the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.